doing? Are we doing okay? How's the temperature in here? Are we okay? There are always lights. I've said this. There are always lights, so like, I am always sweaty. So just <laughs> as a trying to prevent that by shedding layers. Um, we are continuing our study of Genesis this morning. Uh, and the first thing, sometimes I like to open up the question. Are geniuses born or are they made? Are geniuses born or are they made? You think of the greatest minds of today and maybe the past century, the ones whose innovation and creativity resulted in great accomplishments. Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs, Margaret Thatcher, J.K. Rowling, Stephen Hawking, Martin Luther King Jr. Doesn't even have to be geniuses per se. It could be people who are exceptionally talented or good at what they do. Musicians, artists, athletes, engineers, professors, craftsmen. Are these born or are these made? We often like stories of people who seem to be born geniuses. Young prodigies fascinate us. They make us wonder, how can a person so young master such a complicated skill at that age? There's Will Hunting in the film, Good Will Hunting, who can complete a half-solved math problem that bewilders the world's best mathematicians. After solving one problem, he says, do you know how easy this is for me? There are 13-year-old kids who can perform the most complicated pieces on the piano. There are people in their early 20s who are already on the path to be tenured professors at elite universities. These stories fascinate us. But are all these people simply born with this level of skill? The answer is a little complicated. But the end of the matter is that they aren't. One professor from Florida State University, he's written extensively on this topic. He argues this, quote, the differences between expert performers and normal adults reflect a lifelong period of deliberate effort to improve performance in a specific domain. In other words, the concept of a prodigy, the, st the stories that fascinate us, doesn't exactly tell the whole story. Prodigies aren't at that level of skill all at once. Author Cal Newport says this, to master a cognitively demanding task requires a specific form of practice. There are few exceptions made for natural talent. All this means is that there's something to the saying, practice makes perfect. So, are geniuses born, or are they made? In reality, it's a little bit of both. It's not that God's gifting to each person is inconsequential, but that's not the only factor for growth. So, for example, God can predispose someone to say, be a good basketball player by giving him height and coordination. But that person will never become a good basketball player unless he practices, unless he deliberately tries to grow. We all know stories of people who have wasted their natural God-given talent. 
So why all this talk? This is kind of similar to a person's walk with God. Now, unless we're confused, from beginning to end of our walk with God, God gets the glory. It's a matter of his grace that works in us. Our salvation is not a cooperative effort. It's God's work alone. One theologian famously said, the only thing we provide for our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. It is God calling us. It is Christ dying for us. It is the Spirit giving us faith, and it is God sustaining us. But even though God gets all the glory, it's not that we are passive in the process. So in Christ, God has already declared us righteous. It's kind of our position before him. It's settled. But our growth, our our sanctification, in actuality, in how we live, is a process. It's a process by which God makes us righteous and holy as seen in how we live our lives. It's a progressive breaking from sin. It's a progressive deeper faith in and love for God. God gets the glory. God works through our efforts as we grow. Paul captures this in Philippians 2. He can say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. A command to people. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God does it all. But he does it, as he often does, by the use of human effort. It is God who works through us. That means we get, he gets all the credit, and we depend on him for our growth. But we're still called, genuinely, to fight, to run the race, to pursue holiness, to grow. So at the end of Genesis 11... There's another genealogy that leads to a new character. Remember, the genealogies kind of keep the story going, and they establish links between major characters in the book of Genesis. This genealogy leads to the new character of Abram, later called Abraham. Now, despite the fact that the world ended up in the same mess of sin that it was in before the flood, God keeps the story, keeps his promise going. Specifically, he does this through Abram, this new character, and Abram's offspring. Not only does God work through Abram, what we see, God works in Abram. Abram's often seen as a prodigy of faith. Big time faith, Abram. And it's not for bad reasons either, as we're going to see. Even, the Bible even calls him the father of all those who have faith. But Abram wasn't like this all at once. God saved Abram through his promises and grows Abram as Abram responds by increasing in faith. So you see then that the title of the sermon kind of links to Abram's life and the Christian life, right? The promise and progress. So, main point. Main point of our entire time, Genesis 12 to 14. God saves us and makes us new. 
even though he has fulfilled his promises and will continue to fulfill his promises, we still respond in faith. You're not passive. So you open up to Genesis chapter 12. And from chapter 12 to 14, we see God's call and promises to Abram in the first three verses of chapter 12. These are foundational verses, right? These verses affect the entire Bible. These verses affect not just Abram. They're going to affect the entire world. And the rest of the passage deals with Abram's life after he receives those promises. His response in faith or lack thereof. So see then how the, the big picture of these chapters shows up in the structure of the sermon, like two major headings, right? So we begin with God's promise and call, and then we respond in faith. And we're going to see four different scenes of Abram responding to God's promises. Okay? So we begin with God's promise and call to us. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Reading the Bible is kind of like real estate. What are the three most important things in real estate? Location, location, location. When reading the Bible, think. Context, context, context. What is around the passage? What's around the passage immediately before and after it? What's around the passage in the entire book in which it's situated? What's around the passage in light of the whole Bible? Context is key in interpreting and reading properly any passage of Scripture. And I hope that's clear in all these sermons that I preach. Context is key. So with that said, when reading Genesis 12, we have to read it in the context of or against the backdrop of Genesis 10 and 11. Do you remember what happens in Genesis 10? describes the descendants of Noah, of Noah's sons, and how from them all the nations of the earth came to be, and how they came to spread in their different areas. Genesis 11, the beginning of that, is kind of like, how would that happen? We have this united rebellion against God, and then, after the Tower of Babel, God scatters all those people into different areas. So here, beginning of Genesis 12, just like God created order out of chaos at creation in the first chapter of Genesis, just like God created order out of chaos after the flood in Genesis 9, so does God create order out of chaos from the rebellion of the nations after Genesis 11. So again, God brings something out of nothing. There's no hope to be found for salvation. Yet, God sparks that hope. This is the God Abram worshipped. 
The God, as Romans 4 describes, who gives life to the dead, who calls into existence things that do not exist. This is the God of Genesis who shows up again here in Genesis 12. That's the context. The verses themselves, look at verses 1 to 3. Now, it may be tricky. I hope it proves helpful. See that there are two commands, and tied to each of those commands are three promises. Two commands with each command, three promises. First command is go in verse 1. Can you see that? And then you will see a series of I will statements. God is the source of this, the importance of I will. So we have go, and connected to that command of go are the promises in verse 2 of a great nation. What this means will become more evident. Promise of blessing. It's more than prosperity here. This is redemption that brings him to God, that transforms his heart. It's a promise of a great name. This is honor. This is royalty. That's the command of go in these verses. Other command isn't so clear because God promises that it will happen. Kind of like most of his commands work. He will accomplish his purposes. It's the command to be a blessing. To be a blessing. See promises connected to that command as well. Promise of, I will bless those who bless you. Verse 3. Conversely, there's the promise that God will curse those who curses Abram. And it's not those. Notice just, just something little here. Bless those who bless you. And then it's, I will curse him who dishonors you. There seems to be a, a shrinking scope. This world of chaos, rebellion, God's still generous. Do you understand? It's, it's he, he's hoping even in this world that there will be many who bless Abraham, many who receive blessing, and few who curse. That last promise connected to the command, be a blessing, is that all the families or nations of the earth will be blessed through Abram and his offspring. These promises are going to become more specific as God repeats them and confirms them to Abram over time. For now, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, it's a bit like an engagement and the Genesis marriage 15, vows are going to come later. But interestingly enough, you see how these promises fit in the entire book of Genesis. That word bless, it shows up a lot in these verses. It shows up five times in some form. Chapters 1 to 11, it's clear God's loving, God's powerful, God's holy. It's also clear that people sin pretty much every chance that they get. Due to that, there have been five occasions when their sin brings curse from God. So you see that? Three, these three verses, five blessings. Chapters 1 to 11, five curses. God is reversing the curse of sin through his promises to Abraham. Zoom out even further. 
to see how these promises show up in all of God's plan revealed in Scripture. And we, we, we can go back further and we can see that Abram's, these promises here are a continuation of the promise in Genesis 3, verse 15. God says to Eve, I will give you the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And that seed of the woman, just like when God says, in you the nations will be blessed, there's a singular seed and there's a collective seed. That's what we read in Galatians 3 earlier. That singular seed, that in you of verse 3 is Jesus Christ. That's what Galatians 3.16 says. It's referring to one who is Christ. Through Christ, all the nations of the earth are blessed. Through Christ, he lived the life we were called to live, but failed to live. He died a substitutionary death. The sacrifice for the sins of those from every nation. And he rose victorious, securing our redemption forever. Now, that is Abraham's singular offspring. And his collective offspring are those who are in Christ. That's how Galatians 3 finishes. So that means we are included in this, both Jew and Gentile. Galatians 3, 26 to 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the important part here. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We begin with God's promise, God's call. All that may seem real technical, but it's important that we see the trajectory God sets up in these verses. When we truly see it, we can rejoice and take comfort in and praise God that he is the author of history and that he's included us in that plan. What would keep us from rejoicing in this? What would keep us from living in this? God doesn't say to be numb to all the other grief and responsibilities that life carries with it. But this reality, that God has authored history to include you, that's paradigm shifting. We were hopeless. We were dead. But God made us alive. God fulfilled his promise in his son. We are forgiven. We are given new life. We go free. And this is where we must begin. God's grace to us. Just like the whole Bible begins with God, so our salvation, friends, begins with God. You see how game-changing grace is. This is the foundation this is who we are at the core. Products of God's grace. Not our own. God's work in us. 
the foundation of grace should produce humility. It should produce gratefulness, rejoicing, love, motivation for work, to honor God in our work and what he's given. It should produce the posture of our relationships, that we've received grace. It should produce our view of things that God has given to us and things that he's withheld from us. Grace. This is where we begin. All other religious systems of the world would see that there is something wrong, whether or not they would call it sin. And they would tell you how you can make it right. The one true God sees sin. And then he tells us how he makes it right. Friends, we merely receive finished work. We receive it by faith. It leads nicely to the second movement of Genesis 12 to 14. We respond in faith. So over the next four scenes and beyond that in Abram's life, we see God working in Abram so that Abram increases in his faith, in his trust in the Lord. Remember, the credit goes to God, but God uses human efforts. Who was that first scene? That first scene after the promises, we respond in faith by going. You look at verse 4, chapter 12. How does it begin? Where God calls Abram? Verse 4 says, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. We can see how great God's grace seems, how great his promises are. But they do not come apart from our response. This means, friends, that talk is cheap. It's relatively easy to pray a prayer, to walk an aisle after giving an invitation, to fill out a card, to say nice things about Jesus, or even to show up to church. It's relatively easy to do those things. It's quite another thing that our faith in Christ displays itself in obedience to Christ. So we're saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, according to Scripture alone. Those five great solas. But even though we are saved through faith alone, that faith never is alone. Abram believes the God who made these promises. He believes the God who is calling him. How does that belief show up? He actually went. You think about the disciples we've seen, the disciples of Jesus at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. The fishermen like Peter and Andrew and James and John or the tax collector, Matthew. Jesus shows up to them and he says, follow me. And what do they do? It's not hard. They follow him. Abram shows the authenticity of his faith by his obedience. So you look at verses 4 to 6, that displays his obedience. Shows how Abram went and took his family and his possessions with him. Verse 7, God confirms a promise he made to Abram. Verses 8 to 9, Abram obeys God again by worshiping him and building an altar. Friends, the life of Abram should show us that even for all this lofty talk of God's grace, 
the cost of receiving God's grace is not cheap. I'm not talking about money here. I'm saying that responding to God in faith by going, by actually turning from our sin, by actually transforming in our lives, that's a weighty decision. Jesus tells us to count the cost. Jesus tells us that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. This is how God called Abram. Look at what God called Abram out of in verse 1 of chapter 12. Your country, your kindred, your father's house. He's calling Abram out of what's familiar, out of what's comfortable. As we see later in Scripture, it confirms. He calls Abram out of what's sinful. Abram grew up around pagan worshipers. His father worshipped the moon god. So for us, the call to receive God's grace, to respond in faith, to believe in Christ, can only be done if we also turn from our old way of living. Doesn't that make faith all the more important? Because if we don't have faith, if we don't actually believe that Christ is who he says he is, that he's able to do what he says he can do, we're not going to respond in this way. It must begin with faith. We respond in faith and we go for the same reason that Abram did. Because he knew where the Lord was leading him. His eyes were not only on this world. His eyes were on eternity. That's what Hebrews 11 says. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why was he doing this? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. We follow the Lord to this city. We follow by going. And that's hard. It's a weighty decision. Friends, if you have not done that for the first time, if you have not made that initial response of faith, of turning from your sin, turning toward God in repentance and faith in Christ Jesus alone, I urge you to do that today. If you have questions about that, Talk to me. That's why I'm here. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to a Christian friend you have. What's more, if you haven't taken any necessary step of obedience in following Christ, let's say, for example, baptism. It's not necessary for salvation, but baptism is necessary for obedience. We could talk more about what that means. We respond in faith by going. But we also respond in faith, even in times of scarcity. So Abram's life's much like our Christian walk. Initial response of faith, everything's going great. But then, life presses play again, and struggles come. Uh, the last few years, 10 or so, I've grown in my love for roller coasters. I used to hate roller coasters. 
Now I love roller coasters. I can't wait to get to Cedar Point. I haven't been in a few years. Recently, I saw a picture of presumably a, a mom and her son going down on a roller coaster, and the son's just like so terrified he's crying, just that look in your eyes, that unique feeling, and he's holding as tight as he can to his mom, who's just laughing the whole time. At the risk of being cliche, life is like a roller coaster. <laughs> we are meant to hold on to God in faith through all the ups and downs. So even after receiving the promise, Abram must continue to trust God. He must continue to trust God that he will provide, that God will protect him despite all the struggles and difficulties he faces. And guess what? Struggle and difficulty show up quick. How does verse 10 begin? Chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land. What does Abram do? He holds on real tight, takes it to the Lord in prayer. He fasts for a week, slows down. He makes his requests known to God in thanksgiving. He says, God, thank you for your promises and making yourself known to me. You've said good things about this land, but now there's this family. I don't know what, what I should do. What should I do, Lord? Help me. Is that what Abram does? No. There's a famine, and Abram packed up and went to Egypt, where the Nile River provides constant water and fertile soil. Now, the text doesn't say directly that Abram should not have gone to Egypt. But in all the verses 10 to 20, God is noticeably absent from Abram's decision-making. Friends, if, if that's ever the case for you, that's a point of warning. God is noticeably absent from the decisions that you're making. And when he gets to Egypt, he cooks up a lie that his wife, Sarai, is his sister in order to exploit the Egyptians. And he's motivated mainly by fear of man, not faith in God. And so he's willing to risk his honor He's willing to risk his wife's purity to advantage himself. Verse 17, but the Lord, but the Lord proves faithful even when Abram proves faithless. He saves Abram and Sarai from the hand of the Egyptians and they return to the land of Canaan. Because how much do we still need God's grace and patience and protection? But knowing God's steady faithfulness should not cause us to take advantage of it. Those who quickly cry, well, God will just forgive me. I would warn you of that. Those who have that cry quickly may not have experienced God's grace in the first place. Those who experience God's grace still sin, yes. But their sin grieves them. Because just like for Abram in Egypt, when we fail to trust God, we grow distant from him. And we fail to live out what he has called us to be. So those who have experienced God's grace want to draw near to God, even when they fail. And that's what Abram does. So we respond to God in faith, even in times of scarcity, even when we don't have much. 
There may be moments in your life when you are brought to the same place Abram was, famine in the land. These may be times when you don't know what to do. You may not get letters in the sky telling you the exact decision that you should make. But you can seek counsel from other people, from other godly people. You could seek God in his word. You could seek God in prayer. And then from a posture of trusting God, you make your decision. When we are dependent on God this much, that's when God is especially glorified in times of scarcity, in times when we don't have much. Not the only time we respond in faith. We respond in faith in times of, of abundance. So you look on to chapter 13. Abram and his crew are back in the land, not Cleveland, the promised land. <laughs> and they have a unique problem. They actually have too much stuff. Anybody relate to that? You have too much stuff? Wow, what do they do? How do they get all this stuff? God's mercy. Abram went to Egypt. He even left with more possessions. He's rich in livestock and silver and in gold, verse 2 says. And this whole time he's been with his nephew, Lot, whose we're told his father died in chapter 11, verse 28. He probably took Lot under his wings. As Abram got more stuff, Lot also got more stuff. And it got to the point where that phrase, uh, this town ain't big enough for the two of us, actually came true in verse 6. So notice the contrast here, the scene before. Right before this, Abram goes to Egypt. The problem was they didn't have enough. Now the problem is they have too much. Friends, don't believe the lie that if we just had more things, then all our problems would be solved. There may be something in your mind right now and you're thinking, oh, if I just had this, then all my problems would go away. Just had a husband, a wife, a job, pleasure, money, youth, health, etc. Then everything would be fine. Not to downplay that we have legitimate needs. Not to say that all of our desires are bad. But responding to God in faith means that he is more important than our possessions. And it means we trust him in all of our circumstances. It can be hard to remember God when everything is going well for you. But that's not what happens with Abram. We see how faith in God informs how Abram views what he has. Verse 8, Abram shows that he values his relationship with his nephew, who he calls his brother. He values that more than getting his own way. He gives Lot the first choice of where to dwell in the land. That means knowing we are recipients of grace makes it easier for us to be selfless and to extend grace to others. It means that when you trust the giver of all things, then you know that he's going to care for you no matter what. And that when you know the giver is more important and more valuable than the gifts, you can hold those gifts with an open hand. Despite being shown grace, Lot does not act by faith. Look at verse 10. He acts by sight. 
He chooses based on what's pleasing to the eyes. Based on what's pleasing to the eyes. Where has that gotten other people in Genesis? His lack of humility, his lust, his greed. It puts him in a place where those sins flourished. Sodom. How does God respond to Abram's humility and trust in him? He shows him all the land. Tells him that this is where he and his family will dwell. And Abram doesn't say, oh yeah, look how much faith I have. Look at how much God has given me. No, Abram responds in worship. Verse 18, he builds another altar to the Lord. This contrast between Abram and Lot is like that common refrain in Scripture. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The proud are those who trust in their own ways and seek the fleeting pleasures of the world. The humble are those who know they need God's grace, who respond to him in faith and show that faith by submitting to the Lord. Don't make this mistake, though. This is not a prosperity gospel. This is not teaching that if you are just humble, if you trust God all the more, that God will give you material blessing. That is not what this is teaching. Real faith is submitting to and trusting in God no matter what the outcome. Whether in times of scarcity or in times of abundance, it's doing that because you know that God has already shown you grace in Christ. It's settled. It's finished. This is how Paul lives in Philippians 4. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Last scene, real quick. We respond in faith, even in victory. Even in victory. Abram's called by God. Receive God's grace through God's great promises. Promises that would impact the salvation of an unknown number after him. With that roller coaster of life brings struggles and difficulties for Abram. And he has to continue to respond to God in faith. Chapter 14 gives rise to another occasion where Abram responds in faith. If you look down at chapter 14, verses 1 to 16, describe the conflict that's here. You skim the passage, you'll see a bunch of names that you won't see at the hospital registry every day. (laughs) What the passage describes, the four major rulers of the East who dominate the region and have a history of crushing rebellions. Think of the calves consistently beating the raptors. (laughs) This group is coming to punish Canaanite rulers who have refused to pay tribute. This is something similar to a tax. They refused to pay a tribute that was from 14 years earlier. Apparently their internal revenue service was a little slow. They defeat, these rebellion crushers, defeat various groups, including five kings ruling cities in the plain south of the Dead Sea. So these four rebellion crushers versus five kings in the Dead Sea, and that's where Lot lives. The rebellion crushers do what they do best. They crush the rebellion. And in the process, they capture Lot, Abram's nephew. 
What does Abram do? Along with 318 men, he rescues Lot from the rebellion crushers. Abram's so secure in his faith in God that he's willing to risk his life for his nephew. As Christ laid down his life for us, we lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. After all this is said and done, after this victory is won, Abram comes to a bit of a crossroads. Think of it as a post-game press conference and two different reporters trying to lead him into two different directions. Those post-game reporters can sometimes ask like the most obvious questions. How did you win the game? Well, we scored more points. Um, (laughs) Two different options. Two kings approach Abram. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem, or Jerusalem. The king of Sodom, we see in verses 21 to 24, tries to get Abram to rule like a king who acquires everything by his own might. He says, take the goods for yourself. This is how Canaanite rulers ruled. They used their position to get themselves rich and powerful. The king of Salem, on the other hand, Melchizedek, he leads Abram to see that faith in God means it doesn't matter whether or not we get recognized. It means we are more concerned with the glory of God. So instead of following the king of Sodom, he follows Melchizedek, literally king of righteousness, king of Salem, a priest of God. He acknowledges the rule of the Most High God and considers everything he has as a gift from him, even giving a tithe to the king of Salem, indicating Melchizedek is even greater than Abram. We display our faith in the God who gives us everything we have. We do that when we show integrity. We do that when we give God glory, even when we have a chance to glorify ourselves. So this point in the story, we see the promises to Abram are already being fulfilled. He's been a blessing to others. He saves his nephew, Lot. With much prophecy in Scripture, there's an immediate component to it. God is working in Abram to make him into a blessing by increasing Abram's faith. In our journey, God works in us so that we have faith in all circumstances and all struggles. This isn't faith like in a Hallmark card, positive vibes sense. This is faith in an object. Faith in God's promises to Abram that have ultimately been fulfilled by Christ, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is the ultimate priest king, the one who brings us near to the Father, intercedes on our behalf, and the one who rules as our risen king. So in our struggles, in our difficulties, in our joys, in our victories, we show that we trust in the true king of righteousness, who, as Hebrews 7 says, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. This is the one we hold on to in everything. Let's pray.
Lord, we need your help. And it's nothing like prayer that reminds us how dependent we are on you. First of all, for even our beginning. God, we thank you for your grace in saving us, in giving us new life, in authoring history to include us. But God, we know that life goes on, that there are ups and downs, struggles and joys. Lord, increase our faith so that we trust in you and hold on to you all the way, standing on your promises, not our own merits. We pray this to your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.